Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 8. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated just in the way of introduction. It won't be long because I want you to hear as much as you can from my friend Shane Claiborne. He said this last night as he spoke. uh, Prophets, sometimes we mistakenly believe prophets to be fortune tellers, when in reality they are truth tellers. That makes Shane Claiborne a prophet. He is a truth teller. I find him to be a kindred spirit. And just so you know, my hope has always been, and not just mine, but my predecessors who is here today, our hope has always been that this would become a prophetic community. That doesn't mean that we predict the future. It means that we tell the truth. And so who better than Shane Claiborne to help us today as we learn a little bit more today how to go about the truth and what that truth really is. Would you help me welcome to the platform, Shane Claiborne. So glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. I'm just thrilled to be back to Oklahoma City in this special morning with the dedication. We're going to do communion a little bit. It's a beautiful morning to be together. And that scripture, I'm going to say the story uh, that in John 8 that we just read of Jesus interrupting an execution is a good one for this morning. It's a good one for any morning. But this time yesterday morning, exactly in this moment, we were at the H unit at Oklahoma State Penitentiary with James Coddington, who is facing execution on Thursday. I was looking into his eyes, reminding him, and he was reminding me that we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. God's grace is bigger than we can ever imagine. This story reminds us of that, and we'll get back to it in a second, but I want to tell you another story of good news uh, of an interrupted execution. There's a man named Billy Neil Moore who was in the military. He fought in Vietnam, and he came back from Vietnam really deeply troubled. 
in a lot of different ways, not the least of which was financially. And he and one of his army buddies had come up with a plan that they thought was easy access to money and no one would get hurt. They went to rob a house and everything went haywire. The owner was there. They didn't think he was going to be. And they took the life of the homeowner. And Billy Neil Moore was arrested. In fact, he, turned, he confessed to the crime. He was haunted by the reality of what they had done in taking this man's life. He knew that he would face the death penalty. This was in Georgia, and he was fine with that. He said, I had no reason to live. And he said, if I could have pushed the button on my own execution, I would have done it. He tried to take his own life while he was in prison. And in the middle of that darkness, there was an interruption, and it came where we might least expect it. It was actually the, the family of the man he had murdered. They reached out to Billy and they said, listen, we hate what you did. You took someone from us that we will never have back. And they said, but we want you to know that we're Christians, and we believe that we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done and God's grace is bigger than our sins and they said we want you to know that we are going to argue against the death penalty we want you to live because we believe God's got a better future for you and God's not done with you yet and Billy said if I didn't understand grace before that I sure understood it after that he, he dedicated his life to Jesus while he was still incarcerated and living on death row and he said it was a little difficult because when I got baptized we, we didn't do this sprinkling thing we believed in full immersion and you don't exactly have a baptismal font on death row and he said but the warden allowed us to get a pool in there one of those like kind of kid pools you know and he said He's a big guy. He's like, so I laid down. They baptized me and kind of grabbed my legs and pulled me through. And they're like, that's close enough to full immersion. And they baptized him. He uh, kept uh, falling deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. And his trial rolled around. And that family stood up as a witness of what God had done in his life. They became kind of his surrogate family, the family of the person whose life he took, right? It's a story of grace. And in fact, not only was Billy Neil Moore not executed, he was eventually released and he became a pastor. And I have preached with that brother. And every time he preaches, it is the gospel that drips from his lips. It's the gospel that uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. That God came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the righteous, but for the sinners. Amen. I know we're Nazarene up in here this morning, but everybody's got an inner Pentecostal. I'm going to ask you to <laughs> dig deep this morning, okay? But I want to say that as we read this scripture, you know, it's easy to get stuck in some of the, uh, the, the, the stuff that we, the verses that don't exactly uh, line up with grace. And I, I think of, you know, one of the verses I had memorized growing up is, it's actually one of the most well-known Bible verses in the entire world. And that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
And it's this ancient way of thinking about justice, right, that allowed for reciprocal harm. In fact, if you go to seminary, you learn that the, the phrase for it was lex talionis, and it's where we get the root of the word retaliation. It allowed someone to retaliate, to even the scales, and to say, if you hurt me, I can hurt you back. But as you study that retaliation, what it did was it set a limit that you could only harm the person back in the same way that they had harmed you. Uh, so if they poked your eye out, you could not poke both of their eyes out. You could only poke one, right? So we might say an eye for an eye, no more. You couldn't, you know, if someone broke your arm, you couldn't go break both their arms and burn down their mother-in-law's house or something. It put a limit on retaliation. It had to look exactly like what they had done to you. And, and yet, uh, we've used what was meant to limit violence as a license for revenge, right? Uh, so now, you know, we, we've used that law, that framework to continue to justify things like the death penalty, things like punitive justice. And yet, I think all of us deep down, we know that we can do better than mirroring the harm that was done to us, right? I mean, Brother John, if you poke my eye out, we're not really going to poke your eye out. You know, my mama taught me two wrongs don't make a right. We don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. And yet somehow with capital punishment, we still hold out that logic that we can kill to show that killing is wrong. And we end up mirroring the very evil that I'm convinced that Jesus wants to heal the world of. Right. And that's why, you know, my. My Jewish friends, they, they've taught me a, a lot about this scripture. And one of my rabbi friends, he goes, the wild thing is Christians use scriptures like that Old Testament verse to justify the death penalty. And Jewish folks don't even do that. He said, we, we don't believe in the death penalty. And he said, and, and, and you have Jesus. You have Jesus that you've got to reconcile all this with, right? And so when I look at Jesus, you know, we, we often say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, right? That Jesus wasn't abolishing the law or negating the law, but he was fulfilling the law. He was showing us what God's love, God's perfect love looks like with skin on, right? In the flesh. And so isn't it interesting that Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Uh, Moses told you this, but I tell you this. And I think Jesus is going to say, you might, it might be legal for you to hurt them back, but that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's the best that we can do. And that's why it's no surprise in this beautiful scripture that a woman is caught in her sin and pulled out and humiliated before the town and she's about to be executed and it was legal but that didn't make it right right the man had every legal argument to execute her because not only was murder a capital crime back then but there were over 30 capital crimes and adultery was one of them so was working on the sabbath day so i say if you want to bring the the old testament death penalty back a lot of us are going to be in trouble, right? Except Chick-fil-A. But uh, dis disrespecting your parents was a capital crime. 
Some of the parents are saying amen. But, you know, we don't really want to bring the death penalty back, right? And so Jesus comes. This woman's about to be killed. Even in the United States, by the way, we had other, we've evolved in the death penalty. We, we had the death penalty for witchcraft in the Salem witch trials, right? Because it was rooted in Scripture. So we've evolved. But this woman is caught in the middle of adultery. And Jesus comes into the middle of that execution and interrupts it. I love, it's so interesting because I don't know if you notice. The first thing he does is bend down and dig in the dirt. Like, that's weird. You know, we were talking to some of the kids, and, you know, kids are so great. We, we, we asked them, what do you think Jesus was writing in the dirt? And someone said, maybe he wrote, where is the man? <laughs> Dang. You know, and so one of the other kids, this is my favorite one, one of the other kids said, um, maybe Jesus wrote, if this doesn't work, run, woman. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but we do know. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but we do know what he did next. And what he did next was he looked at all of those men with their stones armed and ready. And he said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And the stones drop and the men walk away. And the story ends with Jesus and the woman. And he says, where did they all go? And you get the sense that the only one who had any right to throw a stone had absolutely no desire. That the closer we are to God, the closer we get to Jesus, the less we should want to throw stones at other people. We should be the interrupters of death, the champions of grace, the biggest obstacles of punitive capital punishment, right? We should be the champions of life. Our friend said, not only did Jesus humanize the woman, but he pulled the humanity out of those men. I think of the, the governor right now right here in Oklahoma who's in that hesitation moment right now. There's, it's almost like the, the digging in the dirt. There's a moment, right, where the board of pardon and paroles, has, he appointed you know, a majority of that board. They voted for mercy. They voted for grace for James Coddington. So we're praying for that mercy. One of the, the, the victim's family members, or one of the victims of that crime that put him on death row, her name's Tricia Allen. She's a Christian, and she's speaking against that execution but we remember the Hale family James yesterday he's crying as he said I killed my friend I will never I will never fully heal that but I've done everything I know to do we stared at him we said we're gonna pray we're gonna pray for grace in Oklahoma and so as we're you know I think of the Bible one of the things that strikes me is one of the very first stories that we have is Cain and Abel Cain killing his brother Right? And yet God doesn't kill Cain. God actually allows him to live and marks him and protects him. And he goes on to have a future. I think I, you know, I kept reading the Bible and you get a few chapters later and Moses kills a man. Moses, right? One of the heroes of our faith in Exodus. He killed someone and buried them in the sand. And yet... God's grace gets the final word in that story. You look at David, who I learned in Sunday school is a man after God's own heart. On good days, but David had some really bad days, right? In two chapters of the Bible, the brother just rips through the Ten Commandments. I mean, he breaks them. 
with a passion. I mean, he's going through them. He uh, commits adultery. Really, he rapes a woman named Bathsheba. He kills her husband to cover it up. I mean, he hears the rebuke of God and goes on to write one of the longest books of the Bible. So many of the Psalms are written by David, a womanizer and a, a, a murderer that's given a second chance, right? And you, I love the New Testament because it, 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 you know, it begins... The first chapter of the New Testament begins with the family tree of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, right? It goes through the lineage of Jesus' birth. And it gets to that David and Bathsheba thing. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but it says, And Solomon was born. Solomon was the son of David. But then it says, But his mother was Uriah's wife. It's like, don't forget. That was messed up, right? And yet God's grace prevails. Jesus is born. Even in Jesus' own family line, there is murder and rape. And yet God works through the cracks, right? The, it's the cracks that let the light come in, as John of the Cross says. So I want to say, you know, when you keep reading, you get to... The New Testament, Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. He went door to door trying to torture and kill Christians. He gets just knocked off his rocker by the grace of God and goes on to say, chief of sinners am I. And he talks so passionately about God's love and grace. Ooh. I like how Bono, the Irish theologian, no, singer you too, right? Bono, he said, the fact that the Bible is full of messed up people used to disturb me, but now I find it a great source of comfort. Ooh, if we don't believe that murderers deserve a second chance, we could rip out half the Bible because it was written by them, right? The Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. That's the story. We've heard the story and it is good. Right? God's grace is scandalous as we think of that not only is this beautiful shadow made in the image of God, but so is James Coddington. So is Albert Hale, the man he killed. I remember Bud Welch, you know, he's a hero here in Oklahoma. After his daughter was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing, he was wrecked by it. And he said, I wanted to kill Timothy McVeigh with my own hands if I could. And then he said, but God began to work on me. And he said, I, I, I began to be transformed by the Spirit. And he said, he tells the story of when Bud was watching an interview with Timothy McVeigh's dad. The, the father of the man who killed his daughter, Julie. And he said, I looked on the news and I, I saw Mr. McVeigh with tears rolling down his face and I felt like I was looking in the mirror. Those are the tears of a father. And he said, I contacted him and Bud Welch got to know Timothy McVeigh's dad. And he said, when I met him for the first time, we just held each other and we wept together. We became soul brothers. They grieved the loss of Julie and all of those lost in the Oklahoma City bombing. And then he said, but we also knew that killing was the problem, not the solution. And they became a force standing against the execution of Timothy McVeigh, even though it went forward. And it's their faith that compelled them. What's at stake right now in Oklahoma is not just a political issue right now. It's not just a, a, 
one more thing that we debate in politics, but what's at stake is really the witness of the gospel. Do we believe that anyone is beyond redemption and the gospel is good news and not just to those who think they've got it together, but it's good news to those who are falling apart, right? I, I think of uh, Jesus is one of his most scandalous words was when he tells the religious people, he says, you know, his harshest words, Jesus's harshest words were not for sinners on the fringes of the faith. His harshest words were for the religious folks who thought they had it all together and they were the moral gatekeepers of society, right? He said to them, woe to you. And he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. <laughs> and we wonder what got him in trouble, John, like, saying stuff like that, right? Like the tax this gospel is not for people who have it all together is for people who are willing to admit that we don't have it together. We're imperfect people worshiping a perfect God and trying to help each other become a little bit more like the God we worship. But we fall short every day. I mean, that's why I think an onlooking world, this generation, they see those contradictions. They see so many Christians that are defending the death penalty, defending things that Jesus would never defend. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And they're turning away sometimes. But I, I love churches like this where we can preach the gospel. And where I went to one congregation not too long ago, and they had shirts, uh, the ushers, and, or the people greeting at the door, they wore T-shirts, right? And the shirts, they wasn't like ties and suits, but T-shirts that said, no perfect people allowed. You can come in as long as you know you ain't got all your stuff together, right? So as we prayed yesterday, I can remember uh, telling James, I said, we read Romans uh, where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither angels nor demons, neither height nor death, nothing in, in heaven or on earth. Uh, and we said not even the bars in this prison, not even a parole board, not even a governor, not even the prosecutors, not all of the noise that you are a murderer and a killer. None of that can drown out the word of God that says you are beloved. You are a child of God made in the image of God. And we are all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Amen. We wept together. And he said, I'm ready no matter what happens on Thursday. I hold that. I cling to that. The last story I'll tell you is I, another story of grace. I, I, I first started visiting folks on death row uh, in my home state of Tennessee. And uh, there's, it's called Riverbend Unit 2. That's where uh, the death row is. And uh, I started going there 10 years ago. And I've gotten to know it's very different in Tennessee. Yesterday, we couldn't touch each other. We had to, we, we put a, our hands on the, uh, we put our hands like this on the plexiglass as we prayed together. But in Tennessee, we have contact visits. So I was able to, I'm, I'm able to sit down with the guys I know. We can spend a couple hours together. My mom's been, my wife's been. We, we hold hands and pray. We sing and hug each other. There's, there's a certain humanity about that. In fact, listen to this. I found out yesterday, James Coddington, had not had a visit from anyone in 14 years. 
He said sometimes he's so lonely, he just holds his Bible and curls up with it as he sleeps. When it comes to death penalty, sometimes the, the first time a family is able to touch their loved one on death row is after the execution. So it does something to us, right? But in Tennessee, I'm able to spend some time with these guys, and one of them is a guy named KB. KB, um, is a, I actually believe that he's innocent of the crime that he's convicted of. I know a lot about his story. We're trying to get him a retrial right now. Uh, there's so many folks that are innocent, like Julius Jones and uh, Glossop, so many different stories of innocence. There's also stories like, like James, where innocence isn't a question. But in KB's case, it, it, he's... He was convicted when he was really young. He spent all of his adult life on death row. He fell in love with Jesus, though. And um, he became an ordained pastor. And I got to be there when he was ordained on death row. John, it was, I mean, we, we're, we're there. And, you know, this is death row. So there's, there's about 25 of us that are there for the ordination. And all the guards are standing around. And he tells his testimony. And, I mean... It, there wasn't a dry eye there. You know, he tells his story. KB tells his story of how he fell in love with Jesus, of some of the stuff he'd experienced in his life. And then his, we prayed over him, laid hands on him. His first act of ordination after that service was to serve us all communion. One of the most powerful things I ever experienced in my life was having communion on death row. Served to me by a man who's currently sentenced to die and could be executed. And we, when we look at the cross, sometimes we get a little too familiar with it, right? We think of it as a conduit of God's love and grace and redemption, which it is, but it hasn't always been that, right? The, the cross was 2,000 years ago. The empire's icon of wrath, like the electric chair, right? It was uh, to put people on display to humiliate them, strip them naked of any dignity that they had and put them on display. Some of the historians said, you know, Jesus died with someone on his left and on his right. We kind of hear that sometimes and get familiar with it, but the, the historians say sometimes there were so many crosses with people being executed that you couldn't even see the sunset. And so what Jesus does on the cross, what we remember when we drink the blood and eat the flesh of Jesus is that we remember that God absorbed all the violence of this world, all the violence and hatred and sin, put death on display to subvert it with love and forgiveness in an empty tomb. It's the center of our faith is an executed and risen Savior. And every time we try to defend executing someone, it, it, doesn't it feel like we are betraying the possibility of Jesus to redeem and restore and transform any person to heal the world of our addiction to violence and revenge. So I want to play you this song as we get ready for communion. This was uh, one of the guys that was, uh, that's in Tennessee that I met on death row. 
He is no longer on death row, but he's a, he's a beautiful singer. His name's Abu Ali. And this is him as we were gathered there, uh, unit two, holding hands, and he's singing Amazing Grace, which is noteworthy. It was also written by John Newton, who participated in the system of death, who was a mercenary and a captain of the ships that brought enslaved people. He wrote this song, and this is an African-American man on death row singing about God's grace through that song. Let's listen together. Join in if you want to. Jesus for coming to us as the full revelation of God's love to show us what love looks like we thank you that you have created us in your image We thank you that we're all more than the worst things that we've ever done. We pray that James would feel your love right now. We pray for Governor Stitt right now, that he would know your love and be transformed by it. We pray for the Hale family, the family of the victim, for, of Albert Hale, grieving with them. What happened to their loved one? 
pray for this community right here. That they would be a force for love and grace and redemption. If there's anyone here that hasn't said yes to your love and your grace, we pray that in this moment, they would take the chance to say, thank you, Lord, for being willing to die to heal the world of sin and violence. Thank you for your amazing grace. May it transform us so that we can transform this world. You taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that your dream would come on earth. Your dream would come in Oklahoma and we can't help but see the things that don't feel like your dream and your most perfect will. So we, we pray that you would help us be instruments of your kingdom, instruments of transforming Oklahoma, Philadelphia, the world from what it is into what you want it to be so that more and more people can know of your saving grace. In Christ's name, amen. I said, I'll, I'll take communion after you're done. He said, I'm going to tee you up. <laughs> and he did. I don't know about you all, but this pastor needs this weekly trip to the table to resource and source my understanding of what it means to be prophetic, what it means to be Christian. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I need this weekly reminder against the backdrop of all the other voices out there that say something other than God gives the gift of life by God's grace. I need this. And so if for no one else but me, uh, we're gonna take communion again today, okay? So if you're helping us to set this table, please come. If you are new to our fellowship or unfamiliar, we take communion by intention. In other words, we will get your whole body involved in coming to the front. If you are uncomfortable with that for one reason or another, we completely understand and there will be opportunities for you to take uh, communion via prepackaged elements. There will be people in the aisles who will hand those to you as you go. If you come forward, here's what we'd like for you to do. When prompted to do so, we'd like for you to stand up and exit your pew to the left, your left, and then to come forward, but come forward with your hands cupped if you would. As you approach someone holding a plate of bread, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you, will take a piece of bread and place it into your hands. Your hands cupped because this isn't something that you can grab, you can't buy it, you can't charge it, you can't steal it. We would like for you to receive it as the gift of grace that it is. Take that piece of bread and then dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup. As you dip that piece of bread into the cup, that person will say to you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then circle back around to your seat if you would like. 
or you can come to one of these side padded altars. If you come to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing and someone will meet you there, anoint you with oil, representative of the sticky presence of the spirit, the healing spirit of God. It might be a physical issue, it might be a spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, familial issue, but God heals in all of those circumstances. If you need that prayer for healing, somebody will meet you here or somebody will meet you here. If you'd like to pray at one of these mourner's benches, we won't assume a thing about you, except that at some point, somebody will come by and touch you on the head, the neck, the shoulder, probably me, just to let you know that you are not alone. If you'd like to make a special trip down here to this bowl of water, there is here a bowl of water meant to remind you of the moment of your baptism, the moment when you were included in this particular economy, this particular way of being alive known as Christianity. And if you need to be reminded, as I often do, again, on a weekly basis, then maybe the chill of this water will remind you that you are different, that you are alive in a different sort of way as a functioning, moving piece of the people of God. John, am I even eligible to come? Here's the thing. I wish we had the t-shirts today, no perfect people. If you are aware of your need for grace, as I am, if you are aware of your need for grace, you're welcome, no matter what it is you dragged in here with you today. If you're aware of your need for grace, you are welcome at this table today and every single week. Now, that said, all are invited, but none are compelled. If you'd rather sit this one out, then keep your seat. It's perfectly fine. This is always an invitation. All are invited, but none are compelled. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me, remember grace. Later on, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, August 21st, remember me, remember me. And now all across the sanctuary, if you would, as you are dismissed by row, stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, if you will and come forward to receive these gifts of God, always available for those who would be the people of God.
I know if you are still coming, I'm going to start us off with prayers of confession before turning it over to my friend Jason who will lead us through prayers of petition, intercession, and the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess sometimes the other voices. The other voices can be so loud and terrifying that we find ourselves agreeing. Help us, God, to be able to sort through all of the voices, all of the noise, and recover the capacity to hear the sometimes whispering voice of grace. I'm gonna get out of the way and let you pray your own prayer of confession. Is it possible that you, like me, have at times been intimidated, co-opted by these louder voices that speak a word somehow other than grace? Father, restore us, grant us the capacity to hear, to see, and to follow. And now hear us, God, as we pray for one another. In these moments of pastoral prayer of intercession, you can take whatever posture is most comfortable for you, whether you're here or whether you're watching at home online. We are grateful for these moments and want to pray for a few folks who we know and those who we care for in their healing and God, so we partner with you in these prayers, asking God to come alongside of some folks who really need you. God, we ask that you'd be with our friend Jordan Park, who's in a victim of a hit and run accident, and she's home from the hospital, but God, we ask for your healing and your presence in her life and for Garen as he loves and cares for Jordan. God, we ask that you would come alongside of Vern Cowherd, Shane's dad, who underwent open heart surgery for a triple bypass earlier this week. God, may you continue to do a good work in his life and heal him. God, we're so grateful to hear today that Ben Clippert's with us, with Caitlin. And God, ask that you'd continue in the work that you're doing with Ben to bring him health and healing and wholeness. And thank you for the good work he's doing. And God, would you bless Caitlin as he loves, as she loves Ben. God, we ask that you would be with some folks who have been praying for that they've been able to come to, like Cheryl Hall. And God, you'd be with her and with Pete. God, we ask that you'd continue your love and grace. And Faith Sinclair, who was able to be with us here this morning as well. God, for those with cancer, we ask for your healing. And if you know someone in your life who is battling cancer, this is an appropriate time to pray for them. And as a congregation, we gather around and pray for Diane Dawkins, Scott Peterson, Randa Thompson, and Linda Weaver. And God, we ask you to especially be with Linda as she awaits that surgery date coming up on June, on September 12th, that God, would your spirit be close to her and be healing her. God, we ask that you would come alongside teachers and students as this back-to-school season. God, would you be with those who've had a hard time readjusting to life back at school? 
And God, would you bless our teachers? As God, they've given their life to the education of the little ones, from littles all the way down and up to college. God, we ask that you'd be with those who are lonely and those who are alone. We pray for all who are incarcerated. God, we are thankful for those of our friends who are no longer incarcerated and ask God for a blessing in the life of my friend, Matthew Larson. And God, we also ask and join in prayer with a prayer that Shane has already prayed. God, we pray for James Coddington, that your love and grace would be with him now. And God, we ask that you'd be with all who love and have been loved by Albert Hale. And God, we pray along with Shane, these words, pray for grace in Oklahoma. God, we ask that you would transform us week by week through the Eucharist and week by week through this prayer. The prayer you taught your disciples to pray, and if you're unfamiliar with that prayer, it'll be on the screen in front of you. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.